and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Oh, Mr. Jeezy, thank you as always. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. I am Randy. My guest today is Will Buxton. He is a Formula One digital presenter and reporter. He works for Liberty Media, and he's had a long and distinguished career covering not just Formula One, but but all of motorsports. I was really excited to talk to Will. I was really blown away by the response to our F1 Perfect Club podcast a couple weeks ago, and I thought a lengthy, in-depth conversation with Will was a perfect complement for that. So I, I hope I hope everybody enjoys it. Um, before we get to it, though, I want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Pinehurst Golf Resort, Pinehurst, North Carolina. I think everybody thinks about uh, world-class number two course site of 10 USGA championships, but there's so much more to Pinehurst. Uh, as you think about planning and taking golf trips this year and in, into the future, I, I urge you to consider Pinehurst. It's a true getaway, a true vacation, just such an idyllic spot and world-class golf. Some of the highlights, Gil Hans redesigned number four in 2018. It's wonderful. I've had the privilege to play that a couple times. The Cradle, uh, perhaps the most fun 10, 10 acres in all of golf, is a nine-hole, 789-yard short course, also designed by Gil Hans. It is a wonderful time. Uh, we did a wild world golf from there. And then um, the putting course, this will do, is excellent. And then off the course, you have the Pinehurst Brewing Company, which opened a, uh, a brewery in 2018. Wonderful spot. Lots of outdoor seating uh, for accommodations. They... I've just recently renovated the Manor, which is the youngest hotel at Pinehurst at a mere 97 years old. Uh, and then they're, you know, they have bars and, and restaurants and all of those. It's just a wonderful place. So please check out Pinehurst Golf Resort uh, when you're planning and, and taking your next vacation. You will not be disappointed. Thank them for their sponsorship. And now on to my conversation with Will Buxton. Will, how are you today? I'm I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I was, uh, yeah, no lie, man. I completely blown away by the reaction to you know our little golf podcast talking about Formula One and just realizing how many people are such big race fans that you know also happen to to be golf fans. It was it was really cool to see. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and, you know, Formula One drivers themselves, the vast majority of them, um, are really keen golf players. And I think there's a lot, bizarrely, there's a lot that the two sports have in common because it's about, you know, it's so much about mental strength. It's about practice. It's about nailing every shot, every opportunity. And it's, it's so much about, about perfecting your art and about maintaining your focus um, and how one little mistake and you can throw away a whole championship. And you know, I think they they find uh, there's so many similarities. I think just in the in the focus and the dedication that, that both sports require. So, yeah, one might be at 300 kilometers an hour and one at a far more pedestrian pace, but there are a lot of similarities between the two sports. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and not to mention, you know, the stakes are so high. If you make a mistake, right, you can get just as badly injured in, in golf as, as racing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah, well, your wallet, your wallet can. <laughs> yeah, that's that's much better way to put it. Uh, well, how about how about you? Are you a golfer at all? Do you have any history with, with the sport? So here's, here's the mad thing. Um, I grew up in, in, well, in a few places in the UK, but the majority of my kind of teenage years into early adulthood was spent in Surrey. So really in, in the middle of golf land. Um, and I grew up um, sort of a couple of years removed from Justin Rose. We both came from the same town of Fleet in, in Hampshire. And uh, so, yeah, you know, Justin going on and doing really well. It was always in the local newspapers and, and all of that. And all my friends played golf. And I always thought it was just like a massive waste of time. And, <laughs> uh, and, and the older I got, the more I was like, oh, you should replay. And, you know, they're all off having, having great times playing golf. And, you know, I'd have a bit of fun every, every now and then just, you know, pretending I was Adam Sandler and, you know, happy Gilmoreing it on a course and, and you know, doing, doing the occasional nine holes here and there and just, you know, not taking it at all seriously because I wasn't any good at it because I'd never played. And then I ended up dating this girl um, and uh, who's actually now my fiance. And uh, I really wanted to impress her dad because I'm like, you know, this, this new guy coming into his daughter's life. And he um, actually and, and my now fiance's brother are massive, massive golf players. So I thought, what can I do to show them that I'm serious about 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 his daughter? So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to play golf so that I can go onto the golf course with him and play, and he might be suitably impressed that I'd learned this thing. And I I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I just I completely fell in love with the game. And uh, yeah, it's the bug once it gets you. Oh man, it's uh, it's difficult to get rid of it. You're it's, exactly it's right. Great that, game, I love it. Yeah, you God, that's that's so that's so right. Once once you get bit bitten by the bug, it um, uh, it's it's hard to get away from it. Well, I'm, I'm glad. It really is. How uh, what what's your game like? Are you you know I don't know if you carry a handicap or you know how how, so how would not, you describe I'm, your your game? <laughs> um, I'm not experienced enough yet to have to have a handicap. I think they recently changed the handicap rules or something. So I'm. I'm on like 56, so I, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. um, but um, but uh, so I, I got to play in a pro am in uh, in Austin, Texas last year um, as part of, of the F1 circus. We did a thing called Grid to Green, um, and I was kind of the one of the one of the celebrities, for want of a better word. I hate that um, that uh, <laughs> people could sort of pay to, to have along with them, and I felt sorry for the people that ended up with me. But I I, I actually played. I think pretty pretty well. It's the type of golf where you you each tee off and then you choose the best ball and then you play from that ball. Everyone then plays the next shot and then you do it. I don't can't remember what. what yeah, yeah, uh, just probably a, a, a scramble is is that's what. That's it. Yeah. Scramble. Yeah. Scramble. Yeah, that's it. So so for me, being like almost, I I played eighteen holes in my life. So I played nine twice, um, okay. taking it seriously <laughs> until I got there. So so for me, that was kind of like okay, this is. And it was actually a really great opportunity to to be on a proper course. We were out at Barton Creek, which is a stunning course, mm -hmm. um, and to kind of get my eye in and figure out where I was at because I'd mostly played um, either in a room uh, with a whole load of computers, you know, telling me if my shot was going off to the right or the left, or you know how I needed to control my my swing. So actually, getting out into the real world and playing for real was 
was really great. And um, and I was all right. I, I, t- I tell you, for the first probably nine to 12 holes, I, I, I was great and loving it. And my swing was coming in. My tee shot, they, they ended up picking about three of my tee shots to go from, which I was really happy with. I sunk a couple of putts. I got a birdie on one of them for the guys, which was great. And um, and I'm loving it. My short game is, is I think my short game is pretty good. My my tee shots are all right. I just I just lack I lack confidence on everything between the once you've taken the tee shot and then getting to the green. <laughs> yeah. That's where I I lack confidence. I totally lack confidence. I play almost everything with a seven um, because that's like my that's my safety. That's my go to. Yeah. And um, but I really enjoyed it. And they had a they had um, uh, one of the holes. They had if you if you hole in one. You won like this. I think it was like a 1958 Alfa Romeo. It was worth about six hundred thousand dollars. Beautiful. And I, I kid you not, I played the shot of the day. I played a six off the tee. If I played five instead of the six, with the with with how it was carrying and where it was rolling, I would I would have sunk it. But as golfers. I'm sure everyone listening has got a million <laughs> and one stories like that. But for me, it was my first one. And that, and again, it's that buzz. It's like, man, if I just done the five, I would have sunk it. And you know, you know, yeah. And that's, it keeps you coming back. Well, and and not everybody's close calls though involve a uh, a classic car like that. So that <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, well, well, that's fantastic. Uh, do you know offhand? Um, you know, I, I you mentioned that a, a number of drivers are, are also golfers do you know of of any offhand that are you know more serious golfers than others or, or oh yeah so so carlos Sainz, who has been massively in the news this week ferrari have just signed him to replace four-time world champion sebastian vettel for the 2021 and 2022 season um he's a spanish guy uh, he's really one of the coming forces of, of Formula One and, and is, is going to be uh, a really potent threat into the future. Great kid, really cool, and a massive golfer and exceedingly good as well. Um, I think he plays off, I think he plays off like maybe two or three. Um, he's, oh, wow. He yeah. is, he's an exceptional player. Um, so, yeah, and he plays, and actually his boss at McLaren at the moment, the, the, the guy who, who runs the team, uh, Zach Brown, he's an exceptional golfer uh, as well. And the uh, 1996 world champion Damon Hill, there is one very serious golfer, and he lives in in Surrey, actually, not I think not far from Wentworth. Uh, so very very keen golfer is uh, is Damon Hill. Oh, nice. We uh, as, as this world is is opening up to us, we'll we'll have to uh, maybe we can track a few of those a few of those guys down uh, down down the road and and do some golf oh, stuff totally. with them. Uh, yeah, they'd love that. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you this. Let me start here. What I, obviously we talked about, and I should preface this by just giving you a sense of I I, I certainly I, I know of Formula One, and I had watched races from time to time. Um, I, I knew names of some of the bigger drivers, but I, I do not want to come across as I, I certainly am not a, a well-versed uh, Formula One race fan. And, and so I, I want to make that abundantly clear from, from the outset. Um, now, all that is to say the, the Netflix series that I mentioned, F1 uh, Drive to Survive, they have two seasons chronicling the 2018 and 2019 uh, race uh, seasons. 
they have been fantastic to watch. I have thoroughly enjoyed them. Uh, I feel like when when racing does come back, I am eagerly anticipating being able to watch the the qualifying and, and race process. Uh, and so my, my question for you, Will, is what has your – what do you think of the the series and, and what's your sense of what it's done for casual fans and, and what's the reaction been in the world of, of Formula One that, that you've heard? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm – I'm considering myself really fortunate that they they approached me and asked me to be in it because it's a it's a real honor to kind of be a part of it and to be helping to chronicle you know what's going on and and help to sort of sew together the the narrative arc of of what they're trying to trying to do with the series um and you know no one knew if it was going to be a success or not obviously the people behind it had been very successful with movies like uh, the Senna documentary and the Amy Winehouse documentary. They just released the, the Diego Maradona documentary. So it's the same kind of team of people ultimately behind it uh, that created F1 Drive to survive. And I think what has taken a lot of people by surprise is how many new fans it's it's brought in. I think for existing fans, a lot of them kind of watched it and went, "Oh, that's not completely correct." And, yeah. and there's, 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 because, because you know, you, they took a little bit of poetic license here and there. Some of the story arcs kind of changed a little bit from what totally happened in reality. But they're, you know, they're telling a story, and and, and um, you know, certain things had a greater emphasis than than maybe did at the time. But they they can do that because. They're not reporting on it live. They're coming to it from a season end perspective and saying, right, well, that actually ended up being a really pivotal moment in uh, the relationship between this driver and this team. And, you know, we didn't see it as that big at the time because we didn't know the emphasis it was going to have by the end of the year. So they're really lucky that everything they do, they can do with hindsight and looking back on the wider effect it had on the sport and the career trajectories of everyone involved. Whereas those of us who are there, and, you know, I've really stuck into the minutiae of it day by day by day. We're, we're dealing with everything in the real time. Um, and they have the benefit of, of hindsight. But I think where it's been incredibly strong, as you said, it's either drawn in totally new fans who've never watched Formula One before. Um, but I've also had a, a load of messages from people who said, look, I used to watch Formula One through the, you know, through the 70s and the 80s. And then I kind of fell out of love with it. And then I saw the show on Netflix and I'm back and I'm back watching it again. And I, you know, I forgot how much I loved it. And that's great is, is if it's managed to rekindle someone's love for it. And if it's managed to sort of fire that, that flame of a new love for, for somebody with a the sport, then, then that's great. And, and, you know, it's, it's so good that it's done. It's so good that it's brought some more people to Formula One. Then I think the irony of, of, of how it became such a big success was sort of through necessity in that in year one, Mercedes and Ferrari, you know, inarguably the two biggest teams in the sport, didn't want anything to do with it because they didn't know how it was going to be received. And so because you didn't have the two teams that were fighting for the world championship, they had to look for other stories. And what they went searching for were the real human stories that exist in the sport. And not just the fight for the championship, but the fact that even fighting for a point is sometimes the only thing that people turn up to achieve on the weekend. And that, you know, requires as much sacrifice, as much work, and results in as much celebration as a race victory or a championship win. And so to show those really human stories of um, failure and success, 
um, opened up, you know, all of these other names, not just the Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes or Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari. It was, you know, Haas and Romain Grosjean and, you know, Gunther Steiner swearing his head off the whole time. <laughs> or it was, you know, um, uh, a little kid called Charles Leclerc at Sauber, who is now the number one Ferrari driver and will be there. You know, he's got a longer contract at Ferrari and they even offered to Michael Schumacher. That's how special this kid is. And they got him in his rookie year in Formula One in this series. So it's, it's, it's been a huge success, a huge success. What on earth they do to fill the airwaves with the 2020 season yeah. uh, is yet to be seen. But, um, but for, for, 19, uh, for 19 and 18, I mean, the fact we're sitting here on you know what should be a golf show talking about Formula One is, I think it shows how huge it's been. Yeah. I mean, no greater testament. And I think uh, in thinking about why I enjoy the series so much, it it is for that reason um, that they had to highlight the people and the, and the, Mm. and, and kind of the inner politics and it wasn't just results oriented. Uh, and, it's interesting because you could kind of, I, I think he, I, I could guess at least that, you know, in that first season with a lack of Mercedes and Ferrari, uh, you, I, I could tell that, you know, hey, I, they probably don't want to be involved. They, they want to see a proof of concept first. Uh, and then obviously they, they get heavily involved in season two. Um, but but I think I, I'm not sure if if the creators of, of the series or, or Formula One in, in general could have asked for a better route to take because it, it, it does, it, it, it lets, you know, it, it builds my interest in the whole, the whole field, all the drivers. And then at the very end, it kind of comes around to, Oh, by the way, these are like the two most successful teams. Uh, and these are, you know, the, 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 the people fighting for, for the championship. Um, yeah. It's yeah, it's really funny. Do you know, was, do you have any insight into, the process, um, and I don't know if that's through Liberty Media or I'm sure there were a bunch of different factions, just how this project was presented to uh, Formula One and the teams and the drivers and, and you know what kind of resistance it met and, and the process to eventually greenlight it? Well, I think um, there were a couple of uh, different ideas that were pitched to, to Formula One, you know, there, there was this one from from Netflix. I think there was one from Amazon Prime as well. As you'd as you'd imagine, you know, most of the streaming services are, are going to be coming to a sport as big as Formula One with with ideas. Now, I wasn't part of any of the you know the negotiations or, or anything like that. But as I understand it, they um, they believed that the Amazon uh, route wasn't as as good as the Netflix one because a lot of people kind of you know they sign up to Amazon and it's almost like that that sort of additional extra that you get to being able to get your parcels next day. Whereas those who sign up for Netflix are folks that want to you know indulge in box sets and films and documentary series. You know you look at how the Last Dance is doing at the moment, um, and, and you know honestly I think it's one of the, the greatest pieces of sports documentary television I've well I think documentary making I've I've ever seen. I think the last dance is, is incredible. Um but also they had uh, the program about the Sunderland uh, FC soccer club and to see how these documentary series have grown 
um, and have taken on a life of their own on Netflix. I think there's no better home for a sports documentary than you know than, than being on that that platform. And certainly that's something that Sean Bratch is, who was you know head of, of commercial and digital at, at Formula One for its for the last uh, two three years uh, until he he retired during this season. Certainly, I think that's that's the way that he saw it. That's the way that he believed uh, it would be. And you know he was proved. I think completely right on that, given the numbers and the success of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, it's funny you mentioned that the Sunderland uh, documentary was one that uh, a lot of people reached out on on Twitter and was, "Hey, if you like Drive to Survive, you have to check out Sunderland." So it's it's in my queue uh, to watch. That I'm, I'm yeah, and can you can you believe it? Well, it's this you know it's this tiny little. Well, I say tiny little. You know, they're Premier League. Well, they yo-yo up and down around the place, but they're not. You know, Sunderland is not a Man United. It's not a Manchester City or a, a Chelsea or a Liverpool. It's it's Sunderland, and it's kind of that similar thing with um, Drive to Survive. You know, it's not that first series wasn't Mercedes or Ferrari. It was focusing on on those smaller teams and the names that maybe people didn't recognise, and showing that you know the dedication, the the skills, the heartache is is just as great for the team fighting over tenth place as it is for the team fighting over first. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's, if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to ask you some, some F1 specific things. Uh, oh, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> well, should we start with all the driving changes? It's, is, is this, um, has, has it been, has it caught you off guard? Was, was this expected all these, I feel like in the last couple of weeks, um, there've, there've been so, a, a, a lot of, <laughs> a, a lot of changes. I'm not sure if that's yeah. normal or if that's, you know, I, what do you what do you make so of that? Have, we have every time we start, and it happens every year. Um, people start to imagine what potential driver changes might occur for the next year, and it was it was all going to blow up going into 2021 because there was supposed to be this new set of regulations for 2021, which would bring in these very very different race cars that would be far more on a level playing field. Uh, the racing was going to be better. The cars were going to be, I mean, they were going to look super futuristic. And, and so most of the driver's contracts were coming to a natural end at the end of 2020. So Lewis Hamilton, for example, is out of contract at the end of 2020. So were uh, something like three quarters, 80% of the field in Formula One. So we knew that it was going to be, uh, you know, a pretty exciting, or we hoped there was going to be an exciting driver market. It could have been that every team just went, we're going to stick with who we've got. Um, but then towards the end of last year, you started to get an idea that all wasn't happy at Ferrari, that Sebastian Vettel, this four-time world champion, had been outscored, outraced, outdriven, and essentially usurped by this rookie who'd come in after one year, he's in his sophomore season in Formula One, he's been signed up by Ferrari, and he's winning races, and Vettel isn't. And you're like, okay, this kid is special. And then Ferrari gave him a five-year contract extension, and Sebastian, we hadn't heard of any new contract for him. So everyone's like, okay, this, is, this isn't going to go the way that, that we thought it was. And I made, I don't want to toot my own trumpet, but I made a prediction like six months ago that I was convinced Ferrari were going to go for Carlos Sainz and Daniel Ricciardo, the very bubbly, very fun Australian guy was going to leave Renault and go 
to Carlos's place at McLaren. And sure enough, that's what happened this week. And it's the first thing I've got right in like 20 years, like the first <laughs> prediction I've got right in 20 years of doing this sport. So, um, so it's great, but it's great. It's great for us as neutrals. It's great for fans of the sport. Not that we're seeing Sebastian Vettel possibly having to retire from the sport, but every so often you get a generational shift at which the young guys, the really talented youngsters, start to come through. And we see it in every sport. And sometimes, you know, the baton is, is grabbed away and sometimes it's passed. And I think Lewis Hamilton is going to stay in the sport until the young generation take the fight to him and grab that torch from his hands. You know, he doesn't want to just pass the baton. He wants to be fighting and to be taken down by them you know he wants to he wants them to fight him for it he wants them to wrestle it out of his grip and so we've got the likes of max verstappen at red bull who's one of the finest rawest talents i've ever seen you've got charles leclerc at ferrari who is just this serenely gifted racing driver from monaco um it all the stars all sort of seem to align that his ascent would take him to Ferrari. Um, and you've got Carlos Sainz alongside him, son of the two-time rally world champion. Again, really gifted, really quick, lovely guy. You've got Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris at McLaren. You know, you've got all these young, exciting guys coming through, trying to wrestle it from Lewis Hamilton, who when racing recommences, may take away Michael Schumacher's record as the most successful driver of all time. And it's this young generation trying to grapple it all away from him. And I, I love that. It's such an exciting time for the sport. When we get back racing again, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. I, I think the, the dynamic, um, the, the team, the, the inner team dynamic between the, the two drivers uh, was, Probably my favorite aspect of the Drive to Survive series, and, and just mm-hmm. and just learning how you know it, there's such a competition between the two teammates, but yet they have to you know learn to work together sometimes. And and um, this you is know. it. It's been and it's 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 the it's the crazy thing about motorsport and particularly yeah. Formula One is that if you if you want to be at your best and you want to be competitive, you have to work with your teammates to develop the car, to pull the team forward, to get the best result possible. But at the same time, he or she is the the first person you have to beat because they're the only person in that field that has exactly the same equipment at their disposal as you do. So they're your barometer. Mm -hmm. They are the one direct comparison that people have. And if you're not beating your teammates, well, then you're not as good as your teammate. So you're, you're out, you know, and it's, and that's it. You have to beat your teammates, but you also have to try and keep your teammates morale, momentum going in order to drag the team and pick up the pace and make it the most competitive in, in the sport. It's, it, it seems so completely crazy and counterproductive. And yet that's, that's how it works and has done for 70 years. And that's along those lines. Do you, I, I almost respect so the move like Carlos Sainz, for example, who you know Charles Leclerc is well established at, at Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I I give Carlos a lot of credit. I think because that can't be. 
in some respects, yes, going to Ferrari and and this historic great team is is a great move for him. But to to sign up to race alongside and essentially compete first and foremost against Leclerc, it, it seems like that's man that that is a difficult assignment. Um, yeah, you're throwing yourself into the uh, into the dragon's den, you know, into the into the, the the pit of the lions because yeah, as you say, like if Charles goes. How, well, he is going, but you know, when he gets there, how does he play it? You know, he has to show the team that he's serious. He has to show them that he's fast. He has to show them that he can beat Charles. But mm-hmm. he doesn't want to go there and get Charles's backup. Otherwise, they're not going to work together as teammates. They have to. There's a lot of politics involved. You know, he has to bide his time, bed himself in. Um, you know, try and get the team. Um, you know, to work with him and for him at a time that they're working with and for Charles. You can't wrestle that away immediately unless you're a Michael Schumacher and you turn up and you have immediately that kind of an impact, that kind of a force that turns everything in your favor. That kind of, that that unrelenting, unremitting drive that makes people realize, okay, he's the one. Yeah. I don't. Do you follow no. American football at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the the I because I was trying to think about this dynamic uh, of of race teammates, and and the closest I could get to you know this this weird dynamic where you're competing, but your teammates uh, is at the quarterback position, and you you mm. see it in on NFL rosters, but also in college where you know you'll have a, a an established quarterback, but yet the school is always recruiting you know, the, the next big quarterback. And, you know, sometimes the, the young kid comes in and, and he wins the job and, you know, that's, that's that. Sometimes the, the kid comes in and he, he doesn't win the job and then he transfers to a different school. You know, it, it's just this weird dynamic where you're competing directly against <laughs> your your teammate yeah. and uh, that that's the closest analogy i could think of uh in in another sport is uh, kind of those positional batter battles um but, it, it's, but it's 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 so strange isn't it because you are you know in this instance there's there's 20 seats in formula one and 20 individuals out there ultimately for themselves yeah and yet when they're on track they also have to think about bringing back the result for the team so if you're going wheel to wheel with your teammate, the last thing you want to happen is you crash into each other. You're, you're racing against a rival from another team and you make contact with one another. Well, you can scream and shout the house down and say he's an idiot. But you do that with your teammate and neither car's scoring any points and the team is losing out. So there's always considerations in the back of your mind. There's always things you've got to think about. Um, and it's not easy. It's not easy. you know. And at the same time, you're trying to turn turn that team around to your way of thinking, trying to get them all on your side, trying to get them working for you and trying to unsettle your teammate at the same time as you're trying to move the entire operation forward together. It's uh, yeah. And people do it different ways. You know, people go in, you know, all guns blazing like a Max Verstappen, you know, bolshy, arrogant, I'm the future. I'm the one. I'm not changing. And the whole team went, wow, he's the one. He's, he's incredible. And then, you know, some people like a Charles Leclerc or a, or a, a Carlos Sainz go in very softly, very gently. Yeah, I'll, I'm the number two. I'm the number, you know, it's what Charles did last year. I'm the number two to Sebastian. He's the number one driver. And by the end of their first race together, 
Charles was so quick that Ferrari had to get on the radio and tell him to slow down and not overtake his team leader. Yeah. So you've already, at that, by the end of that first race, put the seed of doubt in the, in the team's mind as to who is the real number one. Mm-hmm. And from that point, you can just keep keep pulling that thread, you know, keep unraveling the jumper, keep keep pulling away, keep pulling away. And that's what he did to the point that that's it, team's his now. I th- in my mind, when I think of auto racing, I, I there's this assumption that racers, drivers, and, and cars are just being pushed to max effort 100% of the time. And I, I, the, the, the Netflix series somewhat disabused me of that notion. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, how often are these F1 drivers and cars, uh, like in a, in a typical race, uh, you know, what, what, what percent of time are they really pushing at, at 100%, do you think? Um, in qualifying, they are because they're on light fuel and they're trying to get every millisecond out of that car that they can. I've seen Lewis Hamilton step out of a car after qualifying and his whole body be trembling because he's terrified himself because he's gone, he's gone so close to the edge and has at a certain point of the lap stepped over that edge that he's, he's terrified himself. And, you know, the cars have a, a limit. The cars can only do what, physics allows them to do but the great drivers can can dance the car on the precipice of that limit you know and and almost pull it back when they just edge over that that cliff face um you know that feeling like when you're sort of falling and you get stopped and your stomach kind of you know bulges in your in your tummy and you feel sick because you you know you, you felt like you were going to fall like you know like, like if you're tipping a chair backwards i was going to say yeah go, go uh, over that bit and you, and you manage to pull it back yeah imagine feeling like that for one minute and 40 seconds <laughs> knowing that if it drops it could be game over you know and and doing that whole thing at as we said you know 250 miles an hour um it, that is when they're on the edge. That is when they're at 100%. But in the race, um, I can't remember if it was Nicky Lauda or Alain Prost um, described racing as being um, kind of almost getting to the flag as slowly as possible because you want to you want to conserve your car. You want to look after it. You want to be gentle to it. The more you abuse it, the higher the prospect is that it's going to break on you. You abuse your tires, you'll have no speed left in them. You abuse your engine, it's going to blow. You know, you want to be precise and delicate and just just coax out of it what you need so that if you do need to push it, if you do need to extract the maximum from it, it's there. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like you or I, if we were to run a marathon mm-hmm. and we went out of the gate at, at, you know, Usain Bolt 100 meter pace, we're going to last 500 meters tops and then we're dead. And, you know, there's still the whole rest of the marathon to go. You've got to pace. You've got to pace it because you've got an hour and a half in these things, sometimes two hours in heat succeeding, you know, 50 degree wearing three layer Nomex overalls. You've got, you've only got four engines a year. Um, you've got to look after the thing. Otherwise, you know, if you don't look after it, it won't look after you. And it, it's about, you know, I, I look at Alexander Rossi when he won the Indy 500 on no fuel and literally crossed the line with no fuel. That was the ultimate example of driving slow to win 
you know, he, he did everything that day to extract the maximum from his car and, and to the extent that there was nothing left in the tank when he crossed the line, literally nothing left. And that's that driving to absolute perfection because he got the most out of the lease. And that, that, that's the job. I love that. I, gosh, I, the, that analogy with the marathon makes, makes so much sense. Um, and, and I think, you know, I was, I was, as you were describing that, that feeling of being on edge, I, I don't know if you snow ski at all, but I think that's where I've yeah, most felt yeah. it is, you know, sometimes, he, you know, you get out on an edge on a ski and, and, and you somehow so manage to shoes, save you're it. You're shooting down the, you're shooting down the mountain yeah. and you, and, and you, and one leg gets a bump and you get an edge yeah. and you know, you're, you know, you're going and it's really going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. But somehow you manage to get your leg back down get your equilibrium and carry on it's that it's that moment of oh god <laughs> exactly yeah exactly um oh, i think without so i am I'm, I'm interested in your background with auto racing then because i have really no appreciation for you know that feeling in a car and i, I imagine you know folks that grew up racing or, or were around racing I, you know, you just develop that appreciation for the skill and, you know, that feeling of, of pushing the car or the vehicle to the absolute limit. Did, did you race growing up or how did you, um, how did you get involved in, in auto racing and, and Formula One specifically? So I, I have been, I've been a fan my whole life and um, uh, I was a huge Ayrton Senna fan and I was 13 when he was killed and uh my dad bought me my first copy of Autosport magazine and Motoring News, and uh, kids at school didn't really get it when when he died. They didn't really understand why I was why I was upset because they were all soccer fans, and you know, soccer players didn't drop down dead on the field. I remember one kid made a really sort of horrible joke. So, what's the difference between Ryan Giggs and Ayrton Senna? You know, Ryan Giggs can take a corner, and and that just was like heartbreaking for me because all these kids just didn't really understand that. I just lost my hero and that's why I was really sad. But my dad got it and he got me the copies of these magazines and I read what the journalists of the day were writing about it and how heartbroken they were and that made me realize that that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to write the words that made the geeky, nerdy 13-year-old kid whose mates didn't really understand him feel okay. Um, and I knew from age 13 that I just wanted to write about Formula One and uh, worked really hard. Um, went to a couple of trade shows, met one of the journalists who had written one of those articles. Um, he was just sitting on one of the magazine stands at this trade show. And I said, hey, I want to be a Formula One journalist. And he said, cool, send me send me some of your stuff. Send me some writing on Monday. So I emailed him and uh, he got back and he was like, yeah, a bit rough around the edges, but we can work with it. And I went through university. And when I graduated university, um, I contacted him again and he said, why don't you come in and, and do a week's work experience with us? And I did. And at the end of it, I took in a sleeping bag and a pillow and he said, what's that for? And I said, well, I'm not leaving. And he <laughs> says, cool, man, we weren't, we weren't going to ask you to leave. We want you to stay. Um, and that was my first gig. I wrote, uh, wrote for Formula One magazine, which was the official magazine of Formula One, um, age 23, 22, 23. And, uh, since then, you know, opportunities that have come up. I've just, you know, jammed my foot in the door and uh, have gone from job to job, fell into television completely by mistake 
ended up broadcasting in the States for almost 10 years, first on Speed Channel, then on NBC Sports, which was amazing to work for the guys at NBC. was was incredible. And I miss them terribly. I miss the American audience terribly because they were such, still are, such a loyal, committed fan base who really loved their Formula One. And I would have loved to have been broadcasting to the States, seeing this growth in the Formula One audience with the with the Netflix show would have been uh, would have been really really wonderful and something I I'm truly sad I don't get to do. But now I'm working for Formula One again, um, like I did for my very first job. I'm now back working for them, but presenting um, and doing it on a digital platform. So going out on Twitter and YouTube and uh, Instagram, wherever you can think um, in the digital domain, I'm 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 there presenting and hosting and talking about this sport that I've loved since I was you know four or five years old and here I am knocking on 40 having done this for, for 20 years and it's been the most amazing ride and I've, I've loved every second of it. That's that's fantastic. I, I love that. That's what it's all about. Uh, thank you uh, for sharing that. Do you, no worries, man. Yeah. Do, do you, so do you travel um, race to race yeah. with? Normally. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, of course, under normal circumstances. Uh, so, so, so you're going to each race in, in each location yeah. then? Um, yeah, so it's been 20 years on the road. I've done 500 and something races. And I've done, if we'd had, I think it was if we'd had 11 races this year, I would have hit my 250th Grand Prix. Oh, wow. Um, so I have a fair few um, air miles and <laughs> a fair few appointments at a chiropractor um, <laughs> for my back. Yeah. But it's, um, you know, um, many, many years as a freelancer of um, riding in cattle class. Um, with your ears, um, you know, sort of your knees up by your ears on the on the you know sort of eighty second and final row of the of the plane. It's been it's been a lot of time traveling. Well, let me ask you this: what what destinations uh, twofold? What what cities do you look forward uh, visiting the most for non race reasons? And then which which tracks and circuits do you look forward to the most uh, because they're the best uh, race tracks? See that's I mean I love the way you pose that question because a lot of people say what's the best race track or what's the best race to go to and as you've so sort of brilliantly already determined going to different places have different meanings for different reasons you know there's the track itself and so Suzuka in Japan or uh, Spa Francorchamps in Belgium you know just these great flowing um, these monstrous race circuits that have so much history to them and just this beautiful natural flow, medium to high speed corners, just, you know, superb racing circuits. And then you have the great cities. Um, I'm thinking Budapest, which is just the most amazing place. Um, Singapore, incredible city to go to. Obviously, Austin, Texas, uh, you know, an amazing place to be. Um, so, so, Everywhere has a, a quality to it that marks it out as, as unique. Um, but there are some that are just, just really, really special. And, and those, those are some of my favorites. I, used to, I, used to, I also used to love Istanbul. Um, I loved the racetrack there. It was amazing. I loved going to Malaysia as well. I loved Kuala Lumpur. Um, some great golf courses out there as, as well. That's where I, I first sort of, you know, had a bit of fun playing golf. And it was usually, you know, uh, one beer per hole. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, and you, you sort of made it to about six holes, and then it was like, oh, I've had, we've had enough now. Let's go back to the hotel. <laughs> but they, the golf courses were at the hotel. So it was great. It was yeah. really fun. Uh, it seems like the the way it's presented um, on again 
kind of coming back to the Netflix series, is is Monaco, you know, as much as there is a Super Bowl of of F one, is, is that Monaco? Is is the the Grand Prix of Monaco? Is that kind of the the biggest event of the year? Is that fair to say, um, or, or or not really? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Are we com- are we comparing it to are we comparing it to to, to Super Bowl fifty three? <laughs> which was interminably dull and you know for all of the fanfare was actually just a massive four quarters of wanting to you know beat your head against the wall um it's i, I think all, yeah no sorry I, I think you know like indy the indianapolis yeah, 500 yeah, or the daytona 500 kind of the, the crown jewel yeah. of of the the race calendar you know what? It, I mean, look. I think I think because of its history, because of the grandeur and where it is, and you know, just the money that drips off the people that live there, it has that very sort of sparkly, shiny sense to it. Um, it's you know, it, it's a terrible track to race on because you can't pass there. So the actual racing, racing is um, is never that great, but it is. It is a spectacle and it is something so unique. And, you know, we should be there right now. We should have been, I had a, a little, you know, notification ping up on my phone this morning, basically sort of saying, hurry up, the gate's closing in an hour for, for the flight to Monaco. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Because you know? <laughs> um, you, you do look forward to it. It's so unique and it's so special. And the only thing that annoys me about the Monaco Grand Prix um, is the fact that it's on the same weekend every year as the Indy 500, so I don't get to go to the Indy 500. It always clashes every year, and it's so gutting because, man, if you could do the Indy 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix, you know, if we could see drivers crossing over and doing the Indy 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix like they used to in the old days, that'd be something. Mm-hmm. So I grew up uh, not far from Indianapolis in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I, I mentioned on okay. our um, – podcast we did previously that I, I never went to the actual race at, at Indy, but I my my dad would take me over for practice days every year. And so I grew up a, a pretty big Indy car fan, cart in, in those days. And actually yeah. one of my favorite drivers was uh, Jacques Villeneuve, who went on, yep. of course, to, uh, to win the F1 World Championship as well. Uh, do you think th- this is all to preface? I, obviously, they they tried the American Grand Prix at the at the Brickyard at Indianapolis, and there was a <laughs> a whole bunch of of controversy and and whatnot. But yeah. with with Roger Penske now involved with with the racetrack, do do you ever is there a way that that uh, the American Grand Prix ever gets back to Indianapolis? Do you think? Well, I, I will preface this by saying that I'm speaking to you now from my office in Oxfordshire in the UK and sitting on my desk in front of me is a piece of Indianapolis because I have a an original Culver block on my uh, on my desk from when the entire oval was made of that now yard of bricks. Um, I was very, very fortunate to be to be gifted one when I went and, and reported on, on the five hundred uh, when I worked with NBC. And um, I'm a huge Indianapolis fan. Um, there is something about that place that reminds me when you you know you arrive in Monza in Italy for the Italian Grand Prix, and the kind of the ghosts of the place almost kind of whisper to you through the trees as you arrive, and it's just that that emotion and that feeling on arriving at, at Indianapolis as a as a race fan is 
you know, it's it's like arriving at uh, Augusta. Um, you know, it, it's just something special. It mm-hmm. me- it means something, and um, I'd love I'd love to see Formula One be back in Indy. I, I think a lot of people would just because just for what Indianapolis means. Um, you know, if anyone can make it happen, it'd be the captain. You know, it'd be Roger Penske. So. Let's wait and see. But, you know, who, look, who knows? They've just announced today the Monaco Grand Prix date for 2021. If we get back to racing, will be, I think, a week earlier than anyone was expecting, which means there, there may be the possibility that the, that the 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix aren't on the same weekend. And that would seem like a, that would seem like a Roger decision to ensure that they were, they were on different days. Um, but let's, let's wait and see, man. I mean, you know, there are some great race circuits in America. You could do an entire Formula One world championship in, in the US um, and you know when we were growing up um, there were two Grand Prix in America you had you know the US Grand Prix West and the US Grand Prix East so who knows if we could get back to two or more races in the US but certainly I'd, lo- I'd love it I'd love to see it hmm. uh, just a couple more questions if you don't mind uh, what one of the things that was really stood out from from the series uh, was the struggles with Williams and you know knowing or, or learning where they were and the success they've had. And now it's, you know, a, a, a family business and, and Claire Williams has kind of taken over as, as team principal. They're, they're really struggling. I thought one of the most um, anguishing parts of, of the second season was just George Russell. You, you could just feel his frustration with, yeah. with the yeah. car and, and the process and, um, what, what do you, do you think bright days are ahead? It just seems like, um, gosh, I, some, something's got to give one way or another, I would think. Yeah. And, and you, you got to hope so. And, you know, particularly with, with all businesses under this pandemic, you know, who survives, who prospers when we, we when we come out of this is, it's a huge question. And, you know, you, I hope that Williams gets back to the form that it, it used to show, and you know, we're not even going back to the to the eighties and the nineties. You know, I grew up with Williams posters on my walls and Williams T-shirts. I was a massive Damon Hill fan, and you know, you talked about Villeneuve earlier. You know, he won the world championship in a Williams, and now these are the guys struggling to get off the last row of the grid. It's um, but even even four or five years ago, they were taking pole positions, scoring podiums, and just shows how quickly the tide can turn in Formula One. Even McLaren that took Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost to all those championships, you know, a couple of seasons ago, were fighting Williams for that last row of the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, just shows how quickly things can change. So, yeah, uh, I mean, look, you, you have to hope that they can they can make it through, they can survive, and they can get back to, to prospering again. But I think right now everyone's focus is on getting through this and picking up the pieces on the other side. And, and, I, and I hope what comes out of this pandemic um, you know, not just in racing, but in life is that, you know, we all start maybe making decisions that are mutually beneficial, you know, maybe a small element of our individual selfishness, um, you know, disappears as a result. Formula One in particular is a sport that the teams have always had a say in the regulation and they've always decided on things purely for their own benefit. And turkeys don't vote for Christmas. You know, what would have benefited Williams over the last few years wouldn't have benefited Mercedes or Ferrari. So, Let's hope at the end of all of this, you know, decisions are put in place and processes are, to, are put in place that will benefit the sport, benefit all the companies and ensure their financial 
stability, their financial future. There's already been talk of lowering um, a new budget cap that will come in that will put everybody on a, a more equal financial playing field. And that is a, that's a huge thing. It's an absolutely massive step for the future. And hopefully, as you say, will benefit a team like Williams and enable it to show you know, what it was once capable of, of showing. Do you, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was with, with Daniel Ricardo now on the move to McLaren, um, I, I never quite understood why he left Red Bull. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me necessarily. Do, do you, if he could, I, maybe not speak for him because that's not fair, but in, in your opinion, you know, do, do you think, would he have been better off staying at Red Bull or do you think now with McLaren, he's finally in a spot where he can, you know, settle in and, think, and maximize yeah. his potential? It, it just seems like it's, I, I'm not quite sure. And again, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to use, I'm going to use your, your, your analogy earlier of, um, you know, you're the quarterback and, uh, and then this kid turns up and is trying to get your place in the team. Right mm-hmm. now, imagine you are the quarterback at the New England Patriots, and all of a sudden, this kid called Tom Brady turns up, and you're like, "Oh my God, he's a bit—he's a bit good, isn't he?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and you sort of see the writings on the wall. A lot of people think that Daniel left Red Bull because Verstappen came along, and and everyone knew that Red Bull was going to pin its future on on Max. And at that point, you either decide, okay, I stay here as the number two, or I go somewhere else to be their number one. And that's why he went to Renault. But it's clear from just a, a year at Renault that the team was not going in the direction, um, or certainly that Daniel could not influence the direction of the team in the way that he wanted. And so he's going to McLaren. And this is a McLaren that will that has gone through a huge shift in competitiveness from being the best you know, with Lewis Hamilton winning titles and um, to right at the back of the grid. And they're back on that upward trajectory again. They're going to have Mercedes engines, which we know are the best in the sport, uh, from 2021. The design team there is on the up. The whole arc of that team is pointing, shooting straight up at number one and to take the fight to Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull. And with Daniel at the helm as the most experienced driver um, in that lineup, I think he's in a really good place. I think I think he couldn't hope to be in a better place, actually, uh, for him, um, because he will be there, their number one. He'll have Lando Norris as his teammate, who will be quick and pushing him really hard. And, um, yeah, for one of the most likable guys in the sport, and certainly one of the people that, you know, I know Drive to Survive has focused a lot on because of his personality and his sailability and just, you know, He's just natural and uh, and, a, and a great draw for the sport. I think being at McLaren, as they shoot back towards the top, it's a, it's a really great place to be. When these teams either drop from, you know, the, the top of the grid to, to the back or, you know, the opposite way are, are making strides and, and are, you know, starting to compete again for, for podiums and, and mm. um, the, the title – in my mind, there are kind of three components that go into the results. And I, I think of, you know, the, the driver and, and his skill and ability. I think of, you know, the design of the car. And I'm not sure how much that varies from team to team. And then I think of the component parts that make up the car. Uh, and, and there might be much more that I just have no idea about. But in your opinion, what 
What's that mix or, or what plays the biggest factor in, you know, either a team yeah. losing form or gaining form? How, what, what's the interplay between those, those parts? So first, it's really important to, to remember that Formula One, every team has to manufacture, design their car individually. Um, it is a pure constructors world championship. It's not like NASCAR, which is stock car racing it's not like indycar which is one uh chassis and you bolt in a, a chevy or a honda and you go and you go racing every team has to design their car from nuts and bolts upwards every part of that car they have to design themselves now they can buy in certain parts parts like a, an engine gearbox uh some suspension parts but there's a very limited set of parts that they can buy. Um, almost the entirety of the car, certainly in terms of its aerodynamics um, and the visible part of the car that you can see, that has to be unique. That has to be bespoke, designed, their intellectual property. Cannot take it from anybody else. Um, and so that is, is of key importance. You know, you can put a driver like Fernando Alonso into a terrible McLaren and he's not going to get it off the last row of the grid. Um, you have to have a good car at your disposal. Um, but then, you know, if you don't have a great driver at the seat of a great car, then a great car will be left achieving results that are way beneath its potential. So it's the combination of the two. If you are a factory outfit, by a factory outfit, we mean a Mercedes or a Ferrari, or a Renault, so a, an outfit that designs both its cars and its engines, then obviously the way in which you design, develop um, that power unit will be in line with your car's philosophy and where you're heading with it. And any customer team that buy that Ferrari engine, obviously they're a customer, so they don't get a say in how that Ferrari engine is put together or how it's designed or any of its architecture. The same if you're a Mercedes customer or you buy a Renault engine or anything else. Um, and that makes a difference because you can obviously make the difference because it's designed specifically to go into your car. Um, everybody else has to design around that. So it is a, a fine dance and no one component part of it is the silver bullet. Everything has to work in harmony. You have to get the strategy right. You have to be able to get the tire to work its tires right. The car has to be suitable for every type of circuit, whether it's a street circuit or a road course or, a, um, you know, whether you're banging through the countryside in Belgium or around the streets of Singapore, that car's got to be a car for, you know, for all circuits and all weathers. Um, and the driver has got to be on his game seven days a week so it's uh it's the ultimate test i think of man and machine and uh no one component part makes a difference it's everything working together in harmony mm -hmm. do you i thank you i i feel like i learned more in that like <laughs> three minute answer than i have i've known my 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 entire life before <laughs> that so i very very appreciative of very uh, welcome. Uh, of that breakdown um, with with Red Bull switching to Honda or bringing in a Honda engine, uh, one I I think 
it seems like that has been a success. I, I, I would defer to yeah. your opinion. Uh, and then two, do you see any of these manufacturers like a Honda? Uh, are, are there any manufacturers that you see that could get into Formula One um, in, in the coming years? So it, it, that's a really interesting one. You know, Honda came back to Formula One with McLaren, and it was supposed to be the um, – you know, the, 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 the two companies who'd had so much success in the 1980s with Anton Senna and Alain Prost and, you know, all those guys. Um, and it was supposed to be this glorious, you know, sort of rejuvenation of this old old relationship. And it didn't work. It was, it was just hell. But Red Bull could see the, the signs that, that Honda were on the right trajectory and so signed them up. And sure enough, Honda have come out with a couple of seasons now of a really decent engine, and they're going to be up there fighting with Mercedes for you know best power unit in the sport, which is which is an incredible turnaround for them. So yeah, good times ahead for Red Bull and Honda. I think really good times ahead. Honda absolutely loves Max Verstappen. They 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 know how good he is. They know what a what a potential world champion they have, um, you know, uh, at their hands. As for which manufacturers enter in the future, it's a big unknown at the moment. And of course, a lot of uh, manufacturers' decisions will depend on the future direction the sport takes uh, in terms of the technology of the power units and you know whether Formula One wants to be road relevant or whether that is going to be the domain of a Formula E, the electric racing series, or, or something else. You know, Does Formula One revert back to screaming, flaming, V10 normally aspirated engines. Um, you know, who knows? Who knows where it will go? Does it have to try and be uh, environmentally friendly going into the future? And will it be like horse racing? You know, sure, the invention of the car, Mev, we weren't using horses to pull our carriages around the street, but that didn't mean that horse racing didn't continue. You know, we may not use normally aspirated engines as our mode of transport anymore, but does that mean that they can't continue in the sporting realm? It's a big unknown, and a lot depends on where Formula One decides it's going in the future as to whether you know other manufacturers will will want to get involved. Yeah. Uh, last last kind of question specific to to Formula One, if if you'll indulge me, um, I think the you know two two of my favorite personalities, well three really, with Christian Horner at Red Bull and uh, Toto Wolff at Mercedes, and and of course yeah. I, my personal favorite was uh, Gunther Steiner at, at Haas. <laughs> do you, do you think did did the series do a good job portraying those guys? I mean, is, is that their true personality? And and how how much do you interact with with those uh, with those guys on a you know through your travels and whatnot? Yeah, I think I think very much. Um, you know, I remember Gunther when he was with goodness Jaguar way back in the day, um, and uh, Christian. I remember when he was a Formula Three Thousand team boss. Um, so yeah, you get to know all these guys over over twenty odd years, and you've been interviewing them and talking to them for all, all of this time. I, I think you know Netflix did a pretty good job of of showing showing the side of them that they wanted to show the world. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's difficult to, it's difficult to hide when you've got a camera on you 24 seven, it's difficult to be anything or anyone other than who you are. And I think you saw that with Gunther, you know, he's, uh, he's a pretty straight shooter. He, he is. I was, I think this, the scene that stands out most to me was, I, I believe it was season one at, at one of the team get togethers. And, uh, um, he said something about, uh, Roman Grosjean 
not not being there and you know pretty pretty pointed comments but he was like oh don't worry I'll, i'm gonna tell that to his to his face um yeah I, yeah 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 he seems like both yeah like you said just a real straight shooter and i i think you know somebody like that i feel like would be at least fun to hang out with if, if nothing else i think well i think i think what's what's great with gunther is you know this is a sport that has a lot of politics in it a lot of there's a lot of layers to the onion you know and gunther just slices straight through it you know, there's there's no there's no lies with him. There's no politics. He's just straight down the line. If you mess up, you're gonna know about it. There is no, you know, there is no wrapping cotton wool around his comments. Um, and that's somebody that that you know knows what it, it takes to win. And uh, yeah, doesn't take any prisoners. Yeah. Uh, well, Will, thank you. Thank you so much. Where I, my last question, where can people find you? Where can they read your stuff or, or, uh, watch your, watch your videos? What's, what's, uh, where would you direct people? So I do pretty much everything these days through the official formula one channel. So you can find my stuff on F1.com, um, be that videos or uh, written work. Um, also you can follow me on social media at W Buxton official. That's B U X. T O N at W Buxton official. And I mostly spend my time on Instagram uh, and Twitter. So that's where you can, that's where you can find me. Fabulous. I thank you so much for your time and insight. Oh, it's been a pleasure, man. Uh, yeah, this I was, really uh, this was so much fun. Uh, I think one thing we've all said internally was, oh man, when, when, you know, when we kind of get back to normal, how much fun it would be to, you know, get to one of these races. So if, if we're ever in the neighborhood or, or, uh, you know, cross paths, I'd, I'd love to say hello and, and buy you a beer if, if we can. That sounds like a very, very good idea. We will, we will cheers. Uh, getting out of lockdown and the world getting back to normal. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. And um, yeah, I just a real, a real treat to talk to you. Oh, me too, man. Thanks so much. Favorite rapper, hey, hey. Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. Ah. The absolute.